The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. Hey, you know, like many small boys, I used to uh, dream of the day of my wedding and um, what would the color theme be? Um, I'm just keeping it real, I'm just saying. <laughs> but but what would happen is that um, as, as a younger boy, there was uh, two or three things I always looked forward to. And and first one was, I wonder what it would be like to wake up the date knowing I'm going to my prom. Because right? that was the first thing I could sort of project. And then what would, be, what would it be like to wake up on the day that you know you're going to get married? But I also used to think, what would it be to wake up to knowing that today was your funeral? And I thought, okay, that'd be kind of a bummer. You know, and would I be aware that I'm going to my funeral, you know? But um, what's interesting to me is that I often think about those special significant days and waking up and knowing that you're going to have a day that will change your life forever. In fact, one of the days that, that surprised me was the day that uh, my wife told me that, that it's time to go to the hospital. Water broke. Baby's coming. It was around 4.30 in the morning, and I thought, oh, can it, can it wait? You know? <laughs> now, shouldn't he be asleep? Or, is the hospital open? You know, should, we, should we call ahead? Babe, can you go back to bed? You know, and, and, so, and she didn't listen to me, and I should have known then. So, but it was as I were driving down Imperial Highway, making that turn to go to Kaiser, I recall taking that turn onto, onto the 710 freeway, thinking life will never be the same again. It never was. It was just different once you have kids. But you know who I thought about, wondering that, that day, what, what, what a significant day must have been to wake up one morning and, and your whole life is different forever, was President Obama, back on January 20th, to wake up in bed, no longer just his wife's husband, but now her president. You know, maybe going over to see his daughters, and it's not, I'm not just your dad, I'm your president. And then I thought about, uh, of course, my mind would wander here, putting, you know, getting dressed, and, and the, the presidential cufflinks for the first time, the special fountain pen, meeting the security guards, the, the secret service agents that would, that would forever now be attached to his hip, right? And they're going to be BFFs forever, maybe even Facebook each other. <laughs> what are you doing now? <laughs> wall to wall, I'm just, just saying. And, and, and then walking down the corridors out of, his, out of his home to the limousine and then having the doors shut, that bulletproof, bombproof limousine, the smell of the leather, and driving down the, the road, heading into the stands there at the, the, the Mall of Washington and, and, and walking up and taking the oath, sort of, and then, uh, <laughs> and then stepping up to the podium and then opening his mouth and changing the world forever, right? It's just a remarkable piece of history. So then I started thinking to myself, what was it like for Jesus to wake up in the morning knowing that he was changing history? I mean, there was, what, when did it dawn on him? Well, I mean, I, we know it at 12 or so that Joseph is still around, but he's aware of a relationship with God that others weren't. But I, I just don't believe he understood everything yet. And then there came a time in his you know, late 20s, early 30s, where he seems to be pushed just senses something is different. 
And he goes to get baptized by his cousin, and something changes for him. He's got real clarity about his mission. He picks four small business owners, um, walking along the beach there in um, the lake in northern Israel, the Sea of Galilee. Peter, Andrew, John, his brother James. And, and then a, a crowd began to gather. See, it, it, here's what's interesting to me is that if you think of Israel as just being peasant Jews and, and a religious uh, aristocrats, you really have the wrong picture. I mean, in the, there was such a mix of people like in this room. There were people who were certainly, you know, struggling in poverty. There were those who were devout at various levels. There was the Essenes, this ascetic monks that would live in caves. There were zealots, the political radicals, you know, the Greenpeace people. Terrorists, the zealots at some levels as well. Then there were the Italians. You could tell because they had the cool mustache and they're always making pasta. There was an enclave of retired military in, in northern in Caesarea Philippi that was devoted to retired military officials. Cutting the nation right in half was the Decapolis, the area known as the Ten Cities, which was a huge Greek and Roman influence, a country, a culture rich in literature and theater and arts and philosophy, probably looked down upon these Jews and their desert god. There was a town two miles northwest of Nazareth, known as Sephora, not the cosmetic store. <laughs> Some guys are thinking, what? We know, right, ladies? So anyway, <laughs> I shouldn't know, but I know. And, uh, and Sephora was, a, it was just a beautiful a Greek town that was known for its theater. And so when I think of Joseph and Jesus looking for work in Nazareth that was a poor town, not a whole lot of expansion going on, it seems to me that just two miles down the road is where they would have worked. And the word that we translate carpenter, which is tecton, simply means builder, and knowing the landscape of Israel, lumber is not a big commodity, not a, it's not a large accessible building material. There are probably more masons than carpenters. So I picture a man who's muscled and tanned because he's worked with his body for all these years. On top of all that, then you had Pharisees who had an embedded culture of two, three hundred years, four hundred years of, of, of devotion to the laws and the words of God because they were committed to keeping the nation pure. And somebody got weird, but there were some men who were still in tune, waiting and listening for the voice of God. And there was another group known as Sadducees, a bit more liberal in their theology. In fact, I, I, well, I, I take it back. I don't want to say liberal. I, I just don't understand it. Because they did not have a view of the afterlife. They did not believe in a spiritual realm. You had other folks living among them, business owners, shopkeepers. You had the crippled. You had the, the lame. You had diseased. You have, and then all these varying degrees of devotion to God and all these varying degrees of religious ideas floating around. It wasn't just this homogenous group of people. And into this, Jesus walks into. It's just like... L.A., only about the buildings. So one morning, he gets up, you know, pulls the blanket off, wakes up the guy that was snoring the most, Peter. Hey, man, Don's almost breaking me. We should go. And they have their fish and uh, pita bread breakfast, maybe, because they're in northern Israel, a lot of seafood, except lobster, of course, right? 
And, and all of a sudden, you know, the rabbi is looking a little different. And he starts to walk to a hill. And people who are waiting for him are gathering around people from the ten cities, the Greeks, the Italians, the Romans, who were occupying the country. Jews from various lifestyles and life stages. Pharisees, Sadducees, guards, women, men. And they saw the rabbi walking up a hill, and you know what? They followed him. So you had this track of dust and noise and, and the sound of gravel crunching and grass bushes bending. And, and, and as a rabbi, he got to the top of the hill, so there was almost like a natural amphitheater. And he sits down for a moment. He opens his mouth and changes the world. And this is what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think what I find the most surprising about some of his words is it's not that they're hard to do. They're just freaking impossible, aren't they? I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, this is why most of us don't do them. And I, I, there's another reason why we don't do them. We don't want to, right? We're under the impression that we know better. Now, I have to tell you, that just, you know, if you wanted to know a little bit about who's actually speaking to you today, I can tell you this about me, that I don't really have a need to be affirmed by people agreeing with me. I am just that conceited that, that I am, I'm happy being an audience and a club of one. You know, I, I will probably be that muttering old man, I was right. <laughs> you know, and who knows what I'll be asking for or saying with pants, you know, cinched way up to here. Because as you get older, the pants get higher for some reason. I don't know why. I never understood that. One day you're just a pair of pants. Oh, Grandpa died. <laughs> How do you know? The pants, that's all that's left. Yeah, but women are the same. Purses, as you get older, purses get higher, and they're two-handled, you know, for some reason. They're, they're two-fisted hand, and then, you know, yeah, grandma died. I you know, there's the purse. Yeah, I, I just don't have that, that need to, to, to have people agree with me, to be friends with people, to disagree with me. And I'm just not wired that way. And, and the, the funny thing is, is because, like I was telling some folks on Thursday night, because I just think I'm right. Now, see, I know this is a surprise to you, but my wife is like, yeah, that's him. <laughs> and she'll tell you that, that it, the, the most ineffective way to get me to convince me to change my mind is to say, well, honey, the other... And I always think, they're wrong. All six billion of them, they're wrong. <laughs> How many of you remember that commercial, um, four out of five dentists can't be wrong? You know, I, even as a child, I knew, that's total nonsense. They all could be wrong. In fact, I think they are, you know. 
And, and, I, 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 and I also don't have the need, when I come here every Sunday, I don't have a need to, to get more members into Club Jesus. So that we can be number one and we can say, see, we must be right because there's more of us. But I'll tell you why. Because my thinking was shaped by a philosopher in the 70s that helped me understand the truth was not measured by numbers. You see, something, either it's true or it's not. And if it's not true, it doesn't matter how many people believe it. It's still true. Do you understand that even if one person believes, if it's just one person left that believes two plus two equals four, and then he says, I'm not sure. It'll still be four. See, here's another realization I also had, that God is not diminished if you choose not to believe in him. He doesn't lose anything. He's still there, still capable of changing lives, still magnificent, still lovely, still caring, not diminished at any level. But I also realize that he's not added to if there's more of us that believe in him. He's just there. He doesn't have a need to be affirmed by your belief in him. Now, what's funny to me, what's ironic is that I find that people who, I'll have a conversation with folks about uh, various topics, you know, and, and um, I, I want to get it to the point to say, well, listen, you know, maybe we're just going to have to agree to disagree. And somebody will say, well, no, you're, you're just intolerant and judgmental. And, and I always find it interesting that if I think I'm right, I'm intolerant, judgmental, harsh, narrow, inflexible. But when you think you're right, you're just right. How is that right, you know? So I, I'm not that person that has that need to try to get everybody to, to jump on board, to be convinced. But I do have a, a, a need to want to connect people to God through Jesus Christ. Because here's what I think. That if you connect to God through Jesus Christ, you're going to have an incredible experience that I could have never helped you with. I could never have talked you into it. I could never have rationalized it. I could never have explained it on paper. I, kept, I couldn't give you the bullet points for it. But when you step into that dimension with him, that he will end the arguments and will answer the questions when you're ready to hear the answer. But until then, I, I you know, listen, we, if you disagree with me on every fundamental, important life question, I, I'm okay with that. I've been doing that for 30 years with my wife. I mean, really, another person is... <laughs> No big deal. I, it's just one more, you know, voice of disagreement, of error, in my, you know, my opinion. <laughs> so I'm just not that person. See, but here's the thing that I find funny now when, I, when I'm trying to process the teachings of Jesus. And I've said this before in, in smaller groups because, you know, I didn't want to be actually go on record. But now that we're being recorded, I purposely stayed away from the Gospels or those biographies of Jesus for this one reason. Those red words used to really bother me. Because I used to think, what if they're true? <laughs> you know? and, and I would try to, to rationalize them away by, well, that's cultural. I'm not Jewish. I live in the, you know, the 21st century. Not the first century. You know, I drive a car, not a donkey. Come on. <laughs> when I'm not in Mexico. So the thing is, is that... <laughs> Come on, you, you were waiting for it, weren't you? Be honest. I didn't want to disappoint. 
So I, I would find myself coming across this section specifically, and, and everything about it would bother me. Everything would bother me. And so I would rather read about the, about the life of Jesus, the meaning of his life, an interpretation of his life, paintings of his life, art about his life, but not his words. Because see, the funny thing is, it spoke to me. Every person that would follow that young man, that rabbi that was teaching, every Italian, every woman, every dad, every child, every person, every slave heard themselves in his words. He was the positive to the negative of his soul. He seemed to explain and maybe even raise more questions than answer. But all of a sudden, I seemed to have a footing to land on. He gave hope. And, and when somebody began to really process those words, it wasn't just like Tony Robbins or somebody else, you know, yeah. But they seemed to have a power to actually change the lives of people. That's what the other part that was frightening, is that it was really un- getting to be uncomfortable to read his words. I- I'm all about reading Paul. I'm down. I'm down with reading John. Yeah, God is love. Great, good, because if he wasn't, I'd be in trouble. Yeah, let, let me get into that weird prophecy buff stuff. So it's something that I really don't have any kind of claim in my life. It's just going to still happen out there. But not the words of Jesus. Not, the, not his words. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the thing I still find, a battle occasionally. Like some of you, you, you have these conversations going on in your head, but it always sounds like your voice. So this is why I say to you that if you're, not he- if you're not hearing voices, you probably are crazy. It's the people that hear voices that are not insane. That means you're alive. And some of them are, are malevolent, and, and they draw you into this despair. They draw you into darkness. They convince you that's what you ought to do. And others paint a picture of hope, the ideal what could be, and you're almost afraid to believe it. And I know why. Because what if you do, and it's not true? You can't take another heartbreak. And so who can you listen to? I mean, who really can you trust? And that was my dilemma in many cases. Because as, as I was exposing myself to the works of some writers of philosophy and, and, and reading history, I, I saw that everybody at one time thought they were right, and they were dead wrong in many cases. I mean, how do you know? And you read one guy, you think, oh man, this guy understood it. And, and then I'm trying to figure out knowledge. And then Spinoza came up with middle knowledge. Oh, this makes sense. But what, but the, the, you know, and, the, and then you're Descartes, who wanted to doubt everything and question everything, including his existence. But he started with himself, right? I think, therefore, I am. So even he cheated. He had to start with something. So he didn't doubt the doubter. See, I was beginning to doubt the doubter. And in all that mess, I was trying to figure out, well, who can you finally trust? Who is trustworthy? Who will you allow to speak into your soul that you're willing to roll the dice on and bet your life on? Because you just get one. And the clock's ticking, isn't it? And as you get older, decisions matter more. I mean, when you're younger, you can break up, lose a job, crash your car, you, you walk, you're fine. Not at 30. Not at 40. Not at 50. It matters more. 
So as I began to think about the life of Jesus, I had a process, well then really almost go back to square one. Who was he? And who is he? And who is he now? Is he a voice of authority that I can trust? Is he a voice that I can actually listen to and he would actually make sense of my life right now? Does he illuminate what is confusing and dark for me? Can he untie the knots that I've made of my life in the mess? Would he untie the knots in the mess I made of my life? And those words kept coming back to me, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you know, here's the thing, I wanted to believe that, I just didn't know how you could believe that. Doesn't it seem ridiculous? Because quite frankly, I have, well, let's see here. Just to be exact, I probably have about 98% of my family in Mexico. Okay, 97.7, I'm not gonna exaggerate. Just rounding up. I, I mean, I, I, I've seen how a third world operates, you know. I, I'm not unclear of a level of poverty where it's the state of poverty. It is not two days before payday, you're broke, so you have to make your own coffee instead of going to Starbucks. Right? You know how, <laughs> by the way, you know when I used to feel broke? I mean, I thought like, oh man, I'm broke. I used to buy my deodorant at the lotter counter, at the SD lotter counter at, at the, like Macy's and Robinson's May. And it was, I think back in the 90s, it was 10 bucks for a stick. Then it went up to 12.50 or 15 bucks or so. But when I was broke and I had to buy deodorant at Rite Aid, I thought, man, I'm broke. <laughs> I'm buying freaking men in, man. It's how much, this is poverty, crushing, debilitating, suffocating poverty. Isn't that stupid? Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. Just so we have a, it's just us. When do you guys feel broke? I mean, like you, like you know you're broke when, you know, can't, well, can't pay the rent. That's broke. Yeah, I got you. That's a little, that's a little tight. How many, anybody else? That's right. How about how many of you, you're broke when you pay the red letter statements? Right? You, you know, you get the white one, please. <laughs> Try harder, you know. Pink. Hmm. Yeah. The red one, you got 48 hours, you know, don't tell me what I got, you know. And then you still call for an extension, you know. Well, who was else? How do you know when you're broke? When do you know you're, you're what's that? When you get your paycheck, that's right. Because you have money for like 15, 20 minutes, and you realize, ah, oh, look, it's not enough. I remember telling my mom uh, how much I loved it when she made pancakes for dinner. Because I was thinking, oh, I, I don't even remember what we did right that you would actually make pancakes for dinner for us. We loved it. Well, this is like maybe five, seven years ago. And then she was saying, oh, that's so funny. I, I, because when I made pancakes for you guys, I felt so bad. Why? I loved it. She goes, yeah, that's because we were so broke I didn't have anything else to feed you guys. It's funny how you remember stuff, right? How you, how you process it differently. Uh, I recall I, I did work at Nordstrom for a couple of years, and one of the years, uh, there was, a, few, uh, was a, a certain period that we, during the winter, we only had one car. It was this, uh, I called it the coffin on wheels. It was a Volkswagen van, and uh, had a bit of play in the steering column. <laughs> there, that was turning. Oh, there it goes. You know, it was that sort of thing. No heater, right? And, and, um, 
He had just one car. And I was working two jobs at the time at the phone company, and then at night I had a night job at Nordstrom as well. And, and uh, there were just some days that, that uh, I couldn't get a ride home. And, and so Lilia would have to jerk the kids out of bed in their blankies and pile them into that ice box and drive over to, the, to Nordstrom and Glendale. And I'd hop in the car. And I always felt so bad for the kids that they had to you know, get out of the car in the cold weather. But oddly enough, when they, I think it was like junior high and high school, they, mom was talking about that, and, they, and, and she overheard them saying, remember how fun it was to go pick up dad at night? Why didn't you tell me? Come here. Closer. <laughs> yeah, I, and I remember that there were times that Lil and I were so broke we couldn't even pay attention. I mean, that's how bad it was. That's pretty good, isn't it? You guys can use that later. And, and, but so she would make, instead of pancakes, she would actually do this. Um, how many of you guys know the frijoles de la olla? You know what that is? Right in the broth, right? It's, it's not refried beans, because we don't do it right the first time, so we have to do it again. But it's, it's the la olla where it's all, and I love the la olla. And so she would, uh, so that would be like it, right? You know, that might be it, maybe a weenie, you know? <laughs> Sliced. Hey, you got three slices. I pay for that, Winnie. <laughs> I got two. And, um, and, but I also love diced onions, which is nature's birth control, and cilantro. <laughs> and so she would pile on the onions and cilantro, and there might be half a weenie in there. And man, I was a party. There was meat with the food. You know, it was awesome. It was incredible. And I, we loved it. And, and she would do the old school tortillas it was at, with Coke. And we would break up the ice so that it was crushed. Dude, I mean, flight's good, but that meal rocked. <laughs> it's funny how we can feel poor or buying a, I have to go buy a jeans at a certain place. You know, I can only buy Levi's today. I can't get my sevens or whatever it might be you want. <laughs> but I have to tell you, having seen some of my family, what they had to go through in Mexico, and, and being thankful that my parents came to this country when they did, there is nothing romantic or elegant or noble or honorable about poverty. Nothing. I mean, uh, aside from what you hear in the movies, have you noticed that every homeless person in the movies is this wise, intuitive person? I've never met that guy, by the way. But everybody who's poor just seems to have this, this, this serene sort of intuitive, they're in touch with Mother Earth, they know stuff, you know, and it's the Westerner that's all in turmoil, you know. You just need to be poor and you'll be happy. And like, no, I can tell you right now, people who are poor, you know what they're thinking about? how to be unpoor, really. How they can continue to feed their children, how can they provide medical care, how can they get them educated, how can they help them find a job, keeping the house warm, keeping clothes on their back. I mean, all of that. I remember my father telling me stories about how they, um, you know, not be able to go to the doctor, uh, when he was breaking his arm, having his mom try to set it. Yeah. And then they're turning black and bruised and weird, and then they having to set, okay, what money are we not, who are we not going to feed to take, you know, Oct- Octavio II to the hospital? He broke his arm. And, uh, and, and then uh, not having enough money for shoes, let alone, uh, I mean, to resole a pair of shoes, let alone another pair of shoes, and, and, and finding cardboard, bending it and folding it to stuff it in the shoe to keep it together, sometimes with a rubber band. So I... I I realized there is nothing about poverty that's attractive to me. Nothing. Nothing. It's almost like the conversation we had a couple weeks back about, about spiritual nakedness. Spiritual poverty 
is just as uncomfortable. When you come to that moment, when you realize that you're naked and ashamed, that I have nothing, you are busted, broke, bankrupt. I mean, this is not, I might be able to figure this out. I might be get out of this mess. This is you have nothing. And most of us are really reluctant to get to that place. In fact, you do everything possible to avoid that place. I mean, I did for years. But the funny thing is, I hear Jesus say this, and I wonder, he can't be right. I told you earlier that I don't need for you to think I'm right to know that I'm right, but, um, but when it comes to Jesus, that's a different story. Because I'm stuck. See, one of us is wrong. In fact, I think about it in a very base level. Almost, if, if you're offended, I, I, I apologize ahead of time, but here's how I think about it. I always think if I'm having a question whether or not if, to trust Jesus and to listen to him and to obey him, and I choose not to, then one of us is stupid. See, either Jesus is stupid or it's me. I tell you the first time I had that thought is when he went, he, and he was still seating Judas at a place of honor in that last Passover meal. I got to tell you, if I knew somebody was going to kill me, I don't know. And I think, was he stupid? Or am I stupid? Hey, I want you to forgive even those people that have hurt you so deeply, so completely, so incredibly wounding your soul. Is he wrong? Or is it us when we say no? I want you to care for people, everybody, not just part of Club Jesus. And understand that there is nothing that I miss You do anything out of motivation because you love me? I'm telling you right now, I will never forget it. Is he wrong? Are we wrong when we change? No, I'm like that person. Then he comes up with this notion about spiritual poverty. And not only is it embarrassing and awkward and uncomfortable, it's, that's just unpleasant to me. And he says, look, if you get to the point where you fully experience your spiritual poverty, not just theoretically hear it in your head, not just Sunday school lessons, not just your theology, I mean, you feel it in your gut. You're going to experience the riches of heaven. Is he wrong? Or we're wrong for not getting into that moment. Here's what I'm going to encourage you folks to do for the next seven weeks, because we're going to be examining each verse one by one. It's to take the time to have the conversation with Christ. See, I, I'm convinced every single one of us has a moment that we can follow him up to a point, and then we're saying, mm, not right now. <laughs> I'm not going any further. I have enough character right here. I'm good. I'm full. No more character. I'm good. 
But I want you to understand something, and this, this is not a joke. I want you to understand that he's not here to help you. He's here to kill you. You can absolutely trust him to kill you. He's not here to help you get a better job. He's not here to help you get along with your wife. Or he's not here to help you, under, you know, do the right thing. And that, no, he's, he's, in much, he's in much deeper than that. And that's the thing I think that we intuitively know. Okay, I'll, I, I'll follow the principles up to the point because they help. They do work a little bit, but mm, I'm not dying for this. I ain't Jesus. But see, he's all in, and we just want a date. You can trust him to kill you. And every single time you come to that moment of, of, of looking at those words and hearing his voice, when you choose to do it, to obey, by the way, you know, we, we all know what obedience is, right? Or when it counts, when you don't want to. Sometimes you just do it out of duty which is the word I hate the most in life, by the way. I hate duty. I do. I mean, I, I wish I could tell you differently. I, I just don't like the word duty. I don't like the word honor. That doesn't make sense to me. Honor, duty, sacrifice. Yeah, not speaking to me. But I will tell you what does speak to me is when I, it's when I love somebody. And it's different because then it's, it's, not a, it's not a duty. It's not a sacrifice. It's, I love you. See, there comes a point where for some of us, I understand that we just obey out of duty. I guarantee this is what's going to happen. And you'll wake up one day and you'll wonder, how did I get here? You're going to follow Christ out of devotion. Because you can't stand his absence. And you love his words. And you love his presence. It's not that it's just right anymore. It's life to you. So when Jesus tells us, Blessed are the poor, happy are the poor. Oh, it's terrific when you're poor in spirit because you inherit the riches of heaven. Here's what I think. I think he's right. And every single one of us that hesitate are wrong. And that we're losing. So I encourage all of you these next few weeks to really process this, just these verses over and over again. Is this true? Am I doing this? Am I living this out? Am I an example of this? Have I experienced this in my own soul? And if not, then which one is wrong? You or Jesus? Hey, let me pray with you and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you so much for your consistent, faithful love to us. Um, <laughs> what can we say but thank you? We are all your people. We are part of your creation. And we are at different places in our journey with you. But when you speak, we hear us. You speak and it's the positive to the negative. It just makes sense. And there are other times we just hesitate. It doesn't seem to make sense at all. We have more questions than we do answers. We have more ambiguity than certainty at times. But what I do pray is that we move into the place of devotion. 
where there is no question, into the mystery, into the romance, into your place. Father, I pray for the man or the woman that's just, uh, you know, they're just feeling like crud has been dumped all over them. Some of it they put on themselves. And they can't even believe you would want them. I pray that you would reach out to them and help them know and hear your love for them. Others who are perhaps confident of their position, that's awesome. But I pray that you strip away our self-reliance and increase our devotion to you. Your words, so simple, plain, incredibly hard to do, impossible. So infuse us with your life. We may live out your life for others. We can bring folks into the community and folks into connection to you. Through your son, Jesus Christ. For his name's sake. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.